So then, I'll ask, I'll begin with a question. What is your view of history? Do you view history like a clothes dryer? You throw your clothes in, you turn the dial to spin, and the events of history spin and spin and spin. In this way, history creates itself, and eventually it repeats itself. What goes around comes around, as they say. Or do you view history like a treasure map? You know, uh, do you view history like more like a treasure map? There's a vast landscape filled with mountains and valleys, and there's a path leading to a clear destination. X marks the spot. That's what they say about treasure maps. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Bible doesn't propose a closed, drier view of history or a cyclical view of history, they call it. What the Bible proposes is a linear view of history. The Bible teaches us that the world had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where the Bible starts. And not only that, but the Bible suggests in many places that history is moving towards something. History is moving towards some ultimate goal. And this ultimate, ultimate goal is both personal and cosmic. That is, we, people, are moving from birth to death, from a beginning to an end that actually stretches out into eternity. And the world, the created order, is also moving forward into the future with a definite plan and purpose. And all of this is shaped by God's providence, That is, you and I, the created order, even Jesus himself, were subject, are subject to a divine timetable. Of course, the Bible is not a history book. It doesn't chart for us every event or doesn't tell the story of every people group in the world. Rather, it reveals critical points on the path of history that will lead us to lasting joy. It's in, uh, it is in many ways then, I'm suggesting, like a kind of treasure map. But God's treasure map isn't marked with an X. It's marked with, you guessed it, a cross or a T, you might say. The cross of Jesus Christ. What I mean is that at the pinnacle of the divine timetable is the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time comes, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Paul writes in Romans 5.6, for while we were still sinners at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given when? He says, at the proper time. He writes later in the same letter, Timothy is, he reminds Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display again, he says, at the proper time. As we turn or make our way into John chapter 7, 
we're going to see that John, that Jesus, is, excuse me, is conscience, conscience of this divine timetable. He knows about it, and we're going to see how this affected the life of Jesus and all of those who are around him. And so, if you would, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, and we're going to read our passage this morning, which comes to us from John chapter seven, and we're going to look at verses one through thirteen. John seven verses one through. 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As you know, as I've said many times, as we move through the Gospel of John, there will be a rising opposition against Jesus. The starkest statement so far in our study in the Gospel of John is John 5, verse 18, where we read that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So they had already kind of marked him out, and they were actually seeking to kill him, to murder him. This is some of the context to this opening verse in uh, John chapter 7 which we just read, uh, that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We know that Jesus was in Galilee because that's where he was in chapter 6, which is what we just studied. He fed the 5,000 on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum was a, a major city in the northwestern coast or shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mark calls Capernaum, that is the gospel writer Mark, calls Capernaum Jesus' home. And Matthew described it as his own city, or his home city, excuse me. It's safe to say this city and the surrounding area of Galilee was Jesus' home turf. It was his stomping grounds. And apparently, Jesus had spent six months in this region, kind of moving around the area, traveling the region. That's what John means when he says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, there's six months between the Jewish feast of Passover and the Jewish feast of booths. In chapter 6, you'll recall, it says in chapter 6, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then in chapter 7 here, as we just read, we learned that the, Jew, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. And so for six months then, Jesus has been traveling around this area of Galilee uh, doing ministry. Now, we have to remember that John isn't interested in giving us a complete history of Jesus. As I said, it's 
The Bible is not a history book. There are lots of events here that we don't know about. Uh, John is more concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's demonstrating that, as we've said many, many times, through a selection of specific signs and teachings that Jesus does. He's trying, John is trying to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we b- would believe in him and have life in his name. So, what about this Feast of Booths? Well, you probably know this feast is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of three feasts that required the attendance of Jewish males who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem. It was a harvest festival, and therefore it took place after the harvest had been gathered. The Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus tells us that the festival was, festival was the most popular of all three feasts. I think we tend to think that the Passover was probably the most popular, but actually this feast, the Feast of Booths, was the most popular festival. In fact, it was simply called oftentimes just the feast. That's what they called it. Everybody knew what, what they were referring to by calling it the feast because it was so popular. The Jews referred to it as the season of our gladness. It's during this festival that the Jews lived in booths or tents. They did that for the entire week, not to illustrate uh, privation or trial or misery. That wasn't what they were trying to illustrate by living in tents, but they were celebrating the protection, the provision, and the shelter that was provided to them by the Lord during the Exodus. And so it was a joyous time. It was a time of celebration. I have kids and many of you have children. You can imagine that the children probably loved this festival. I can't think of anything better for a kid to do than to camp outside in a tent for an entire week. Hence the popularity of this festival. In fact, one commentator called the festival the Jewish Camping Festival. And it's just such a festival that Jesus' family, his own family, thought might prove to be the perfect opportunity for Jesus to go public with his ministry. And so here we have the first group, the first group of people that helps us to disclose God's divine timetable, and it's this, it's Jesus' disbelieving family. And so we have a disbelieving family in verses 3 through 5. Let me read those verses again. So his brothers said to him, to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to show yourself, excuse me, to the world. And then John tells us, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now Mark 6 3 gives us the names of Jesus' brothers. He had four brothers. James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon are the four brothers of Jesus, of course, half-brothers. We're familiar with James and Jude because we have two books in the Bible, two letters in the Bible, James and Jude, and those were written by Jesus' half-brothers. At some point, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in other places that was after the resurrection. But here, James and Jude are unbelievers, along with Simon and Joseph. Joseph, excuse me. This challenge that these brothers offer to Jesus does have an air of truth. There is some truth to what they're saying. Let's be honest, if Jesus is going to convince anyone that he is the Messiah, 
Well, he's going to have to convince them. He's going to have to convince the holy city of Jerusalem. If Jesus is the Messiah, then his ministry must be more than this small itinerant ministry in the northern hills of Galilee. The Messiah is a public figure. Therefore, his ministry must be a public ministry. The brothers are challenging Jesus to move his ministry to the metropolis, to produce miracles in the nation's heart and center, the city of Jerusalem. And what better time than to do it during the feast, the most popular feast in the Jewish religion. Now, of course, the fact that these men didn't believe in Jesus does cast a kind of dark shadow over their advice to him. And so, while these words carry some worldly wisdom, they don't align with God's wisdom. The brothers don't understand that the Savior's mission is an unpopular mission. They can't see what's coming. If they can imagine anything, it's that Jesus would be accepted as Messiah, that the Jewish leaders would accept him, and that he would restore the fallen booth of David. That Israel would return to its promised place of dominance in the world. That's all that they can imagine. The challenge, I would say, even rings a little bit of mockery. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This reminds us of the words, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. It even has an air of Satan's challenge in Matthew chapter 4, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, they're unbelievers. The brothers command, show yourself to the world. But we've read already in John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet what? The world did not know him. As Carson says, the world is precisely that which cannot receive him without ceasing to be the world. If the world was to receive him, it wouldn't be the world. It would be something else. The world cannot know him, and it did not know him. Jerusalem, therefore, would not know him. Yet, Jesus will dramatically reveal himself to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. Not as a political leader, however, but as what? As a suffering servant. That's how he'll reveal himself. Jesus would get to Jerusalem, but he would get there following the divine timetable. It's an intriguing fact, there's some application here, that Jesus, that his brothers didn't believe in him. I know we oftentimes joke about what it would have been like to grow up with a sinless brother. One can only imagine how hard it must have been to not play favorites with these sons. That being said, and for Jesus, it was bad enough that his own people were seeking to kill him. But here, his brothers, even his, his own family, maybe even worse than the Jews seeking to kill him, were these brothers who did not believe in him. His own family. There is truth in the description of Jesus from Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that all of us 
have unbelieving family members. All of us can relate to that. Some even as close as a parent, a spouse, a sibling, maybe even a child that is an unbeliever. It's very possible that you blame yourself for that fact. That the worldliness or the spiritual state of your loved one is somehow your fault. Maybe you think about what you could have done or what you should have done. If only I would have fill in the blank. Prayed more. Read the Bible more. Went to church more. Didn't go to church as much. Whatever it is you might imagine. If you would have done that one thing, then, and only then, maybe they would have turned to Christ. Now, many of us have fallen into such kinds of thinking. Consider our Lord's situation. In what ways did Christ fail his brothers? Did he storm away in anger one night? Did he retaliate against them? Maybe he spread lies about them. No. I think not. Christ committed no fault ever against his brothers. He never once sinned against them. Every response, every action, every moment demonstrated, as we sang, the perfect love of God. Every time, with every response. Yet even Christ's brothers failed to believe in him. They failed to see it. If you were with us the last couple weeks, maybe you're thinking of John 6, 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Seeing his miracles, hearing his teachings, even living in his company are not enough to make men believe. As was mentioned last week with Judas, the mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet have made a man Christian. The Lord's situation also reminds us that he can sympathize with us in this matter. He knows what it feels like to have an unbelieving family. He can relate to us in this way. He drank from this bitter cup and he has passed through this fire. If you have an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving parent, an unbelieving sibling, an unbelieving child, you can turn to Christ and you can pour out your heart to him. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can help you in this matter. Our Lord has felt this pain, and our Lord can help this pain. I hope you can say amen to that. Turning to verses 6 through 8, we see our Lord's response to this disbelieving family. Verses 6 through 8, let me read that. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And so we saw a disbelieving family. Next we'll see a discerning Savior. A discerning Savior. There are two Greek words used for time. 
The one Jesus uses in verse 6 speaks to the quality of time. That is, it points to a suitable time, the right time or a favorable opportunity. Upon the request that Jesus go to the feast, Jesus is saying, now's not the right time for me to go. But he says to them, your time is always here. Jesus intends a strong contrast here. Not my right time, but your right time. What's lurking behind this phrase are really two different missions. The mission of men and the mission of Jesus. Because these men didn't recognize Jesus, their time was of inconsequence. These men had no divine commission to discharge. They could report to the feast as faithful Jews and proceed as the world does. But what a contrast there is here with Jesus. To say my time has not come is to say I have a mission to accomplish. Jesus is participating in something bigger. He has a place in the divine timetable. The contrast continues in verse 7. The brothers demanded that Christ show himself to the world, which of course makes all the sense in the world from their perspective. As Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, and the world cannot hate them, because they haven't believed in Jesus. They are of the world. They belong to it. Jesus said, would say later in John 15, 19 to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Again, Jesus is markedly different than these men and the men of the world. The world hates Christ, and the verb form is continuous. The world continually hates me. That's what Jesus is saying. It does now, and it will continue to hate me. Now, now why, I should ask, why exactly does the world continually hate Jesus? What does Jesus say? Well, here's the reason he offers, he says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's why the world hates Jesus, because he has something to say about the world. Jesus marks himself out as the one who gives testimony that men and the deeds of this world are evil. Of course, men have no desire to have their sin rebuked, and therefore they hate Jesus. John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, maybe you remember this. Jesus says, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The fact that Jesus came and men did not accept him proves it. That's the judgment. They're judged by not, by not seeing that he is the true light. The world, you might say, has been judged because Jesus came, and we did not accept him. As people did not accept him, we crucified him. Jesus continues in that passage. They did not accept him. They, they loved the darkness rather than the light because, again, their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus says to Nicodemus, in our late modern culture, where we've grown so accustomed to a certain sensitivity of language, the words of Jesus are striking, they're almost appalling to the modern ear. Even the notion that something is evil has escaped us. 
The only moral absolute in our day is to say there is none. Yet Jesus says something altogether different. Jesus is saying there is a right way and a wrong way. What he's saying. And it's this testimony that will lead him to the cross. It's this testimony that will compel the crowds to cry out, crucify him. Verse 7 does underscore the real reason why people dislike the message of Jesus. This is the real reason why people reject what we call the gospel message, the good news of our Savior. It's one thing for me to unpack a Christian doctrine, to stand up and talk about theology proper, you know, the attributes of God, or salvation, or eschatology, the end, end times, or God's sovereignty, for me to unpack the Trinity. That's one thing for me to do. But it's something quite different to call people to denounce their sin and to continually walk with God. It's an entirely different thing. We don't fail to come to Christ for lack of knowledge. We fail to come to Christ for love of sin. We can't accept the witness that Christianity bears against our bad lives. This is why all saving faith begins with repentance. It always begins with repentance. Remember in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, the sermon from Peter when he kind of unpacks all that the Jews had done by killing the Messiah. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for Peter to turn to me as a Jew and for, for him to say, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what is their response? Now, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. There was a moment where they realized we killed the Messiah. They were cut to the heart, it says. And said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? Peter said to them, repent. Repent. Put your finger on it and say, that was sin. What we did was evil. And now turn and live according to God's re re revealed will. Do what he commands you to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What does Paul say in Romans 1.18? He says that the unbeliever suppresses the truth in his unbelief, in his lack of knowledge, he suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness, in his sin. He can't see the truth because of his sin. And so the only way to solve that is to repent of that sin. That is the solution. Have you seen those commercials for Jesus, the, the recent ones? I'm sure you've seen it. He Gets Us. Maybe you saw it in the Super Bowl. I think that's where it kind of came out for the first time. I don't often comment on such things. I usually try to be about what I agree with instead of try to be about what I disagree with. And so I don't often comment on such things. But it is interesting to me how these ads downplay this significant part of Christ's ministry. Namely, that the world hates him and that he testifies that the deeds of this world are evil. 
The sense behind such ads is that we need to take a fresh look at Jesus. If I'm following along, I think that's what that I'm supposed to do. See Jesus in a new way. It's a fresh look at him. Jesus isn't about the right or the left. He's not a part of any political organization. He's not aligned with any one church or denomination. I'm supposed to see a Jesus that is filled with love and hope, who understands my struggle and who fights for justice. A Jesus that is about us. He's about women. He's about refugees. He's outraged by injustice. A Jesus that gets us. That's what I'm supposed to see if I'm following along. Of course, most of this is true. But this line of reasoning can never answer the question, why did the world kill Jesus? If Jesus gets us so well, then why do we kill him? I suppose the woke answer is that the establishment killed him. Jesus fell victim to a dominant ruling class, which of course is just another way he gets us. This language certainly strikes a chord in our day. It's popular. And it may even strike a chord with you. But it doesn't harmonize with the Bible. It's like a picture of Jesus with a a piece of black construction paper kind of laid over part of it. There's some of Jesus there, but there's a part that's covered up. Can't see the whole picture. I realize those ads aren't trying to communicate everything you can possibly communicate about Jesus. We can't do that in 30 seconds. I get that. However, there are certain things that need to be communicated. I agree that the world does need to take a fresh look at Jesus. I agree that Jesus can be found on the right and the left. I think that's true. I agree that Jesus can be found in different churches and denominations, even in this very moment. Praise God for that. I agree that Jesus is filled with love and hope, that he fought for justice, that he is for women, that he's for refugees, that he's outraged by injustice, that he can understand my struggle, he can relate to my struggle. All that is true. I'll even grant you the phrase, he gets us. I'm okay with that. But if this is the sum and substance of Jesus, well, then I can't agree. If your Jesus can't be hated by the world, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. If your Jesus doesn't testify that the works of this world are evil, well, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm afraid, dare I say, it's not a Jesus that will save, which breaks my heart. Because you think you found Jesus and nothing could be more dangerous than thinking that you found the true Jesus and he's covered up. And until you see all of Jesus for what he is, you can't be saved. The Jesus who saves is a Jesus who calls men to repentance. That's the true Jesus. And Jesus says, because of that, the world hates him. If I may be so bold, let me suggest the fresh look at Jesus that the world so desperately needs. 
And I'll even put it in modern parlance. Here's in woke language, so to speak. I'll give it to you. Everyone wants to live for something. You know it. Everybody wants a purpose in this life. The fact that that history is not cyclical and that it's terminal cries out that you have to live for purpose because we know we die. And so that, that screams to us, live for something. Yet, whatever purpose you find, it enslaves you in the end. You begin to serve that purpose. And not only that, it will lead you to exploit others because you love yourself. And so that will become the central aspect of your life. And you will step on others to gain it, to get it. And you know it to be true. Whatever identity you seek to, to, to find, whatever identi- identity you, ski- you seek, excuse, excuse me, is impossibly fragile. Whatever persona you project is filled with holes and you're constantly patching them up. The satisfaction you seek is elusive. It can't be found in this world. And the reason you feel this way is that you were created for the most tremendous purpose. You were created to worship. To worship the one true God that created you. But you worship everything else. And so do I. Your failure to worship, my failure to worship, the God that created me leaves me in violation of his obligation and love. I'm in violation. And so here's the fresh look at Jesus that you need to know about. Jesus came to this earth not to exploit people, but to serve people. By dying on the cross, Jesus took the penalty we deserve for violating our obligation to God. And if you trust that the death of Jesus covers the penalty you deserve, then you can find an identity like no other. It's an identity not subject to our mistakes. You don't need to patch it up. You don't need to try to be something you're not. It's an identity that's fixed by the love of God. It's fixed by the love of God. This identity then creates new desires and actions in us. It creates obedience. We're no longer bound by the things of this world, but we're free to experience deep satisfaction and hope for the future. All this can be yours if you turn this moment to Christ and trust That on the cross, he took the penalty. He took the penalty you deserved for violating his obligation and his love. Now, maybe that's a little too fresh for you. I don't know. Whatever the case, however we advertise Christ, we must leave room for Christ's words. We must leave room for these words. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
Moving then to verse 8. Jesus says, You go to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus is not going up to this feast. And the reason is this, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus again refers to time, the divine timetable. Jesus and his brothers are on two different times, two different timetables. The brothers are following the world's timetable, and Jesus is following the divine timetable. And with this verse also, we have to admit that we have a little bit of a challenge. There's an interpretive challenge here with this verse and the verses that follow. Because Jesus says he doesn't go, he's not going to go up to the feast, and yet what does he do? He goes to the feast. And so let's look at verses 9 through 13. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's give this third section the title, The Disagreeing Worshippers. The Disagreeing Worshippers. As I alluded to, there seems to be a contradiction here between verses 8 and verse 10. However, I do not think there is, I do think the difficulty is removed if we take Jesus' words as his way of separating himself from his brothers. Again, two different timetables, two different missions. Notice in verse 10, it was after his brothers went up that Jesus makes the point that Jesus went up not publicly but in private. Recall how the brothers wanted Jesus to go to the feast with great publicity and fanfare. That, however, was not in the divine timetable. What was in the divine timetable was for Jesus to arrive in the middle of the feast. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. It was according to this plan that Jesus, of course, would avoid the crowds, all the people moving to this great feast. He avoided all that. Not only that, but Jesus removed himself from much of the ceremonies surrounding the feast. Jesus did not go up to this feast as a religious pilgrimage. That wasn't his point. That wasn't why he went. Jesus would go up to this feast to teach and to proclaim to the pilgrims, as we'll see in a number of weeks, John uh, chapter 7, verses 37, 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Therefore, when Jesus says, I'm not going up to this feast, he's refusing to go up in the way they had set before him. That's my interpretation of this, and that's my solution to the challenge. I'm not going up to accomplish your agenda. Rather, I have to work according to God's agenda, God's timetable. Commentator Temple wrote, when he appears at the feast, it's not as one of the pilgrim worshipers, but as a prophet. And arriving in the middle of the feast demonstrates that. He has a different mission. Therefore, we have no contradiction between verses 8 and verse 10. While Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, the enemies of Jesus were seeking, seeking him out. That's what verse 11 tells us. Remember when John says the Jews, he always has the enemies of Jesus in mind. So, verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. These are his enemies. 
Verse 12 confirms that those who came to worship in Jerusalem disagreed about who Jesus was. Some said he is a good man. Others said he is leading the people astray. And all of this was done in private. Our translation has that word muttering in verse 12. The NIV, maybe reading from the NIV, it translates this word as whispering, which is maybe actually a better translation. These pilgrims were speaking in low tones. They were in corners. They were among friends. They weren't publicly talking about who this Jesus is. Why? Well, verse 13 tells us, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It wasn't safe because they were seeking to kill Jesus. We're not surprised that there's a disagreement about who Jesus was. Remember when Jesus was a child and his parents took him to the temple uh, to make a sacrifice and to offer him, uh, present him to the Lord. There was a man there by the name of Simeon. Maybe you remember Simeon was waiting to see the Messiah. God had promised him that. And he made a prophecy of Jesus, he wrote. This is in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, here, kind of fulfilled, the prophecy is fulfilled in some way. Jesus was a sign that was opposed. And the disagreements in this passage remind us that there's always been endless differences and disagreements and divisions about religion. J.C. Ryle wrote, The open hatred of some toward Christ, the complaining, fault-finding, prejudiced spirit of others, the bold confession of the few faithful ones, the timid, man-fearing nature of many faithless ones, the unceasing war of words and strife of tongues with which the churches are so sadly familiar, they're only symptoms of an old disease. Such is the corruption of human nature that Christ is the cause of division among men wherever He is preached." End quote. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring, bring peace, but what? But a sword. As long as the world stands, Christ will be loved or hated. Some will believe and some will believe not. Is he a good man? Or has he led people astray? What say you? There's nothing more important than what we think of Christ. Paul wrote, If I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel in it, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message of Jesus is the message that saves. It's the only message that will give us access to eternal life and eternal happiness. The good news of Jesus Christ J.C. Ryle again, while others waste their time in vain jangling, I love this old language, they waste their time in vain jangling and unprofitable controversy, let us take up the cross and give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. The children of this world may hate us as it hated our master because our religion is a standing witness against them, but the last day will show that we chose wisely. We lost nothing, and we gained a crown of glory, a crown of glory that fadeth not away, he says. So then, through these three, 
a disbelieving family, a discerning Savior, and the disagreeing worshipers. The divine timetable is disclosed, and we end kind of with our, as we close, we begin to close, we end with our big idea then. The study of the three have given us this big idea. A disbelieving family, a discerning Savior, the disagreeing worshipers help disclose the divine timetable. Just a couple more thoughts. Return to a previous metaphor. This passage reveals an interesting part of God's treasure map. The passage gives us some of the path, but it also helps to see, helps us to see that history is moving towards something. Jesus doesn't say what goes around comes around. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Of course, Jesus followed the divine timetable perfectly. How many times in John's gospel do we, do we read Jesus say something like, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a constant theme in this gospel. He says it over and over again, this idea of being sent to do something, being on mission. As believers, we rest not only in this fact, but also in the fact that we can follow the divine timetable. We have both the Word of God and the Spirit. Isn't that what the psalmist looked forward to when he declared, Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We can accomplish God's revealed will as Christ did. Wherever we find ourselves on the divine timetable, time on the map, wherever you find yourself, whether it's a mountain or a valley, we know that we're on the right path when we're obeying the commands of Scripture and we're not grieving the Holy Spirit. No matter where you find yourself. And this, of course, friends, will lead us to the greatest treasure ever. Everlasting life. Joy, peace, happiness. Recall how Jesus' brothers were not on the right path. Why? Well, verse 5 tells us they did not believe in him. Unbelievers don't have the ability to understand God's word, nor can they obey his spirit. They do not have God's revealed will. They don't obey God's revealed will. And so, they're lost. That's why we say we pray for the lost. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He can't find his way. Romans 8.7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot. There's a promise, however, in Scripture. Scripture does tell us that we can find a way to this path. There's a time in each one of us in which each one of us might enter into that divine timetable. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, In a favorable time, I listen to you. God is saying this. In a favorable time, I listen to you, and a day of salvation, I have helped you. God is saying there's a time in which He'll hear us, and He will provide help. 
I know these ideas seem contrary. This is the way God's word is. The, the, the mind can't accept it. I, I can't see God, but yet if I cry out, God will hear us, is what this is saying. Behold, the verse says, now is the favorable time indeed. Behold, he says, now is the day of salvation. When is now? <laughs> now is the time, is what that verse is saying. It's marking it down every time it's read, now, today is the day of salvation. You could say that yet anytime. Church, let us take comfort in this. Because our Lord Jesus followed the divine timetable, we also can follow the divine timetable. Ta- time Jesus has paved the way. He has gone before us. He has secured our future. And for those who have not yet believed, there's no better day than today than to set your feet on the right path and turn away from the world. Turn to Christ. Amen?